Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Kids, second grade and down, if you, it's your time to be dismissed to children's worship. Wednesday night. The date was January 17, 1991. Don't know if that rings a bell for anybody else, but it does for us. We were in a worship service with a packed sanctuary. We were having on that Wednesday night a, a big uh, orchestra and choir event, and we had drawn people from around the community and I began to notice as the evening went on that television crew after television crew began to show up in that church because we were a big military church, lots of Navy and Army and some Marines, etc. I realized before the end of the service that that night we had declared war. It was Desert Storm. Some of you may recall or may have been involved in that event and I unfortunately knew too much, being a pastor of a lot of the Navy personnel, we had those persons in our church who were in the war college that was planning that event, and when they do that, they run the various scenarios of how this attack could take place and what could be the response to that attack, and as many of you recall, they thought there were huge supplies of mustard gas that could killed thousands, and the reason I knew that, many of our chaplains were involved because, believe it or not, when they plan a battle like that, they have to ship caskets and body bags appropriate for the first several weeks of that conflict. Leaving that service that night, I called the staff, and we began to talk about what do we do, and how do we respond, and who's gone, and because they were sending a battle group out, which is numerous vessels and thousands upon thousands of people when you think about an aircraft carrier and a destroyer and all the other ships that are going to be a part of that event. And I knew immediately that we would have multiple families and, and they were going to be involved in a conflict that could lead to their instant death. So I called the staff together that uh, weekend we had called our deacons. Our deacons worked through our Sunday school. The deacons called the Sunday school care leaders. Care leaders called our people. And so by that weekend, we had a pretty up-to-date record of who was gone and where they were gone and what their task was going to be and who was at home and what response our church needed to make. I remember sitting there with my church staff, and I'm thinking, what would you preach on that given Sunday morning to that congregation in light of the fact that we had 60, 70 families that were immediately impacted that could be in a crisis situation very quickly? My 
minister of adults was actually the one of the persons on our pulpit committee or search committee that called me to be the pastor and he had since gone to seminary and come back on our staff and he looked down at our bulletin that's when we had bulletins that we would give out every Sunday morning if some of you can can date yourself in that way and and the text was this text and he said Dr. Hemphill he said I, I, I think you've preached this message here before and I said yeah I probably teach it or preach it almost every year and he said isn't there a moment in the sermon where you actually have said that the decisions that are made here in the local church have greater significance than any decision that will ever be made in Washington DC I said Dick I, I, I think maybe I have said that he said, were you just preaching or did you mean it? Preachers are sometimes asked, are you just preaching? And I said, no, Dick, I, I, I do mean that because the decisions that are made in Washington certainly have a great impact. There's no question about it. And they have an impact on our economy. They have an impact on our lives. But the decisions that are made in the life of the local New Testament church have eternal consequences he said then that's the message you ought to preach so open your bibles if you would to matthew 16 we're in the middle of this gospel it is a critical moment it is a turning point in matthew's gospel many of you have read the gospels over and over and in the synoptic gospels those gospels that look at jesus life and ministry in chronological order matthew mark and luke there is in the beginning of all of those Gospels a period of time called the Messianic Secret. It's kind of surprising when you first read it because Jesus will heal someone, He'll do a miracle, and His response is, don't you tell anybody. See to it that you tell no one. Now, Jesus is aware that there was a great deal of Messianic speculation. People were anticipating some sort of Messiah figure to come. That had been prophesied throughout the Old Testament. There were numerous events in that intertestamental period of time, the time between the Old and the New Testament, recorded in books like the Maccabees, where there were leaders, political leaders, that had come out of the Jewish community, and many had declared them to be Messiahs, and they were looking for someone who would give them political dominion again as a nation, and they would be out from under the throne of Rome or Greece or whoever it was at that time during that intertestamental period. So in Jesus' early ministry, as the crowds began to follow him and the numbers were intensified from time to time, as you read the text, you'll find someone, even in the crowd, that'll shout out something like this, Son of David! Son of David! One of the Messianic titles from the Old Testament. In other words, the crowd He's beginning to think, this man is more than a prophet. This man is something unique and something different. And so the Pharisees and Sadducees are beginning to question as well. And you're going to find that this text actually begins by them requesting that he show them a sign from heaven. Look at Matthew 16, 1. Now the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and putting to Jesus to the test, they ask him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, in that context, he refuses. In fact, he says, 
there'll just be one more sign. That's the sign of Jonah, which, of course, applies not only to the Old Testament, but was a figure of his own death and resurrection. And he said, even then you won't believe, which was true. Now, in the context that Pastor Ryan read for us, was likely a private meeting with his own disciples. He now is in Caesarea Philippi, the northernmost point of his earthly ministry and journey, and he turns to his disciples and he said, okay, what do people think? What are you hearing on the street? And they say, oh, well, they say, some think that you're John the Baptist. Now, that's pretty amazing because he's dead. Uh, He has been beheaded already, and so some are willing to think that this guy Uh, has been raised from the dead. He will be, but not the case. Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. Now, prophecy had ceased nearly 400 years earlier since Malachi. There had been no word from heaven, and Israel had been waiting for a sign or a word, and some were saying, okay, this is one of those prophets. God's speaking to us again. And then he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? The most significant question ever asked and the most significant response ever given. Peter, who has somehow become the spokesman of the twelve, he says, uh, we believe that you're the Christ. The Greek there is from the Hebrew Messiah, the Christus, the Son of the living God. Now, this word Messiah means anointed king. So he's making a statement that is pretty radical in its nature. In fact, it changes everything. Most of these men who dared utter that confession, these first disciples, are going to be killed themselves for their audacity in declaring that Jesus is king. Because that's what it says. Not Caesar and not any other earthly ruler. And So many will be faced with death or recant. And to our knowledge, not a single one ever recanted that call. To declare that Jesus is the Christ alters everything, even today. So in that context, it may surprise you, it did me, That when we pay attention to this passage, what is most stunning is Jesus' response to Peter. He said, uh, Peter, you're correct. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, you didn't figure this out. You're not that smart. My Father has actually made this revelation to you, and you are incorrect in your assessment of who I am Now, listen to this. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, it should stun you that in the very first moment that Jesus allows anyone to acknowledge his messianic identity, because remember, we're in the messianic secret. This is when he's been telling people, don't say anything, don't you tell them, because he understood that there were too many political ramifications and what could transpire not just among the Pharisees and Sadducees but the common people as well and so Jesus understands the 
possibility of misunderstanding. And he says, Peter, you are correct. Now, let me explain to you why the Messiah has come. I ask my students all the time, why why did you think Jesus came to earth? And they will generally answer something like, to save me from my sins. We tend to answer that very individually, and that's not an inappropriate response, but it's not a complete response because Israel thought more often corporately than individually, and the real response is that Jesus came to earth to save people like us so that he can incorporate us into a new community of born-again believers in relationship with him. In other words, Jesus came to this planet to establish the church. Now, I hear people all the time today, it's become almost commonplace. Well, I love God. I believe in God. I'm even the follower of Jesus, but I, I don't care for the church. I'm going to suggest to you that you cannot be a follower of Christ and not love his church. It's his bride. It's his field. It's a building. He came to establish it. He tells Peter in the very first confession, the reason that I'm here, the reason Messiah is here, is to establish a community and relationship with him for the redemption of the world. The church is designed by God before the beginning of time. Paul says that in Ephesians 3, that this church, God's church, was intended from the beginning of time. It's not a second thought. The Old Testament was not some sort of colossal failure. I hear people kind of preach that as if this was a mistake. It didn't work, so let's start over. No, God was always from the beginning of time establishing a people made up of Jew and Gentile alike in relationship with Jesus, his only begotten son, so that we would complete his kingdom task until he returns for his church. You see, when people ask me, what is my purpose? Some of the reformers would say to glorify God. Well, that sounds simple enough. How do we do that? Go out. And some people say, oh, you know, I can do that out in nature. I just get out there on the lake and just enjoy God's glory. We glorify God by completing His mission through His church. You were created for His church. His church was designed... In his son, from the beginning of time, he came to establish his church. He died to redeem his church. He imparted himself through his Holy Spirit to empower his church. And someday he's coming again for his church. Cannot be a committed follower of Jesus Christ and not love his church. So what is this whole thing about well let's just kind of take it apart phrase by phrase first phrase has to do with its foundation he says upon this rock i will build my church every phrase is pregnant with meaning the foundation is essential and fundamental to everything else we were able to build a house here on the lake a year and a half ago or so and i remember watching them dig the hole and we were out there taking pictures. You know how it is if you build. And then they begin to put the concrete down and they begin to put the pilings in place and all of that kind of context. And, and the reality was that once that was kind of established, nothing about that house other than a few walls shifting here or there could change because the dimensions and the height of that house were already determined. 
I remember when I was pastor at Norfolk, I would go downtown in Norfolk. If any of you know that area, there was a beautiful harbor place they built down there, and it was my route to the hospitals. When I go visit the hospitals, I would go down that way on a regular basis, a couple of times a week. And uh, beside the harbor place, one day there was a big construction sign that came up. You know, the one that uh, you know had the holes you could kind of stop and look through it, see what's going on in there, and and it said. Uh, coming soon, Dominion Tower. Well, I've learned to believe none of the construction signs except slow men working. Where that one is, it's true. It's slow men working. Nothing came soon. I went by that place month after month. I'd glance, look over there, stopped at the stop sign, nothing. Occasionally, I'd see some debris on the road, but that was about it. So one day, I'm sitting there, and I had an old Mazda that had a moonroof on it, and uh, my car literally began to shake on the road. I mean, it was literally just vibrating on the road. And, and I looked to my left where the fence was, and over the fence there was a huge pile-driving crane that had dropped some sort of steel girder into the ground. And what was happening is it was driving it foot by foot, inch by inch, into the mud and muck by the Elizabeth River. And it dawned on me now for six months they have been going down. They were going down four, five, six stories. They began to put concrete in place. They began to put these steel girders in place. And, and they were establishing a foundation. In fact, they spent more on the foundation than they did on the build. Now, if I were to tell you that I came by there a couple of weeks later and somebody had torn down the fence and there was a one-story metal frame building on that multi-million dollar foundation, what would you say? You'd say that would be foolish. And in fact, it would. I think the Apostle Paul actually comments on this text over in 1 Corinthians 3. So let me invite you to open your Bibles, moving it over there. Keep your finger in Matthew 16. We're going to have a, a lot of fingers working today. And Paul, I think, is actually commenting on this section. So in 1 Corinthians 3, I want you to go to verse, uh, let's start about verse 5, if we would. So you remember that Paul had established this community. Paul later, Apollos, a gifted spokesman, came as well, and he was able to begin to build on what Paul had already established. And so Paul is writing about this to these Corinthians, who some of them boast about, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. So he says, okay, what is Apollos and what is Paul? Well, they're servants to whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. He said, now I planted, he's talking about the foundation of that church, Apollos then watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but it's God who causes the growth. Now, remember that, we'll come back to that in our mind. Now the one who plants, the one who waters are one, but each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. We are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building, now, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid the foundation, another now is building on it, let each of us be careful how we build. No one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, the foundation is not Paul. The foundation is not Peter, as the Catholics misunderstand. Uh, they see that word Petros and Peter and the whole rock analogy. But that's not the point at all. Paul said there's no other foundation. It was 
Peter's confession that thou art the Christ. Upon this confession, upon this moment in time when God the Father revealed to Peter that Jesus, in fact, was indeed the King Messiah, it was this moment in time where this foundation for the church was laid. So my question is if the sovereign God of the universe took an old rugged cross and he hammered it foot by foot, inch by inch, into the mud of this sin-sick world. And he crucified his precious son on that cross. And he allowed the blood of his son to drip down into that ditch and become the concrete, the foundation of the church. What must he then desire to build upon it? You see, if God put his son in the ditch... It matters how we build on it. In fact, in that text, he's going to go on to say, let each of you be careful how you build. Wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stone. Seem like odd building materials, but gold, silver, precious stone was used in building the Old Testament temple. You remember they brought their gold and their silver and all of those precious items they had. And Paul is saying, now, if the Old Testament man, under law and not under grace, was willing to bring the most precious things they had in order to build a physical temple, which is destroyed and would be in rubble at a due time, what must God desire that we use to build upon His Son? So the building materials not only have this Old Testament imagery, one is temporal, very easily destroyed, and one is permanent. Gold, silver, precious stone, when tested by fire, which is going to be a part of this text, only becomes more precious. Now, I'm a reader, I'm a pretty avid reader, some of you might figure that out, and I know maybe some of you don't spend much time in the classics, but every time I read this passage, I think about one of the great classics of all time, and that's the three little pigs. It's a great story. You remember the first pig goes out, and he's anxious to get out and play, and so he builds his house with straw. And, and the wolf comes, and he huffs and puffs, and what happens? You can talk back, church. He blows it down. It's no permanence, no stability. Next one says, not going to make that mistake. He goes out and gathers some strong branches and twigs, and he builds his house out of the branches. And big bad wolf comes, huffs, puffs, blows it down. Dang, nothing left. Third one says, oh, I'm not going to make that mistake. So he builds it out of solid stone. Wolf comes, huffs and puffs, can't blow it down. Well, that's a fun fairy story. This one's not. The Son of God was laid in the ditch that we are now building upon. And Paul would ask the question, are you building with wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stone? Because there's a reason for this. Look at it. He said, because someday each one's work, each person's, he's not just now talking about Paul and Apollos, he's talking about us. Each person's work will become evident. The day will show it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test what the quality of our work so that if anyone's work which he has built on it remains he will receive a reward if anyone's work is burned up he will suffer loss now wait a minute wait a minute 
Paul is not suggesting that we can lose our salvation. We cannot earn it, we cannot purchase it, nor can we lose it. He's so careful about that that look what he says. He will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, yet only as if through fire. Spurgeon said some of us are going to end up in heaven with our sport coats ablaze. The reality is, unfortunately, many of us give the leftovers to Christ. We oftentimes say, well, Pastor, you know, I'll, I'll serve on that committee or I'll do this if I've got any time. You know, I'm so busy in the community. I belong to this organization and I've got season tickets and, and, and I'm just so busy. And so if, if, I'll give you whatever's left this year. Folks, don't bother. That's just stubble. I'm not going to put stubble on this altar. If God laid his son in the ditch, why would I bring less than the best of all that I have? Because it is upon this rock that he is building his church and he allows us to become builders with him. You see, when we accept Christ, we don't have the option of whether we're going to be in community with him. In 1 Corinthians 12, 18 says, He places us in the body as He chooses. So church membership, truthfully, is not an option. We're born into Christ, and we express that through our relationship with a local church. We don't have that option. We don't actually have the option whether we'll build or not. He says all of us are that. The only option we have is the material that we choose to use. That's what He says. Upon this rock, I will build my church. I love to preach this text. One of the reasons I love to preach this text is because I love the church. My dad was a Baptist pastor. I know the church. There's nothing perfect about any church I've ever been to. If you ever found one, don't join it because you'll mess it up. The reality is the church is where God expresses His Son's kingdom on this earth until it returns and so it belongs to him it, it's not ours it doesn't belong to the deacons or the trustees or the elders or the pastor or the staff and I, I understand when people say oh that's my church I love that I love people to identify with the church but it's his church which means he sets the rules he establishes the mission he's the one that empowers the growth of the church it's about him it's not about us we kind of get this all backwards upon this rock. I will build my church. Next phrase, I will build. It has to do with supernatural empowering. Did you see what Paul said in Corinthians? He said, I planted Apollos water, but what? Who gave the increase? Same thing, same thing. See, what God is doing in the life of this church is supernatural by design. So it leads me to a question that I always ask every lay person. What are you doing right now through his church that you cannot do in your own strength? What are you doing that requires supernatural empowering? You see, we have stayed in the safety zone so long of what can I do? What am I gifted to do? What am I able to do? What am I willing to do? Well, I'm not comfortable with that. And, and, and that's not natural to me. Don't ask me to show. Folks, it's not supposed to be natural to you. It's supposed to be supernatural. You see, the problem is we want to do supernatural work in natural strength, and it doesn't work. I remember my first kind of 
<laughs> reality check with this. I was coming back from Cambridge, having worked on my Ph.D. there, and my first full-time pastor was up in Galax, Virginia. Beautiful church up there on the Blue Ridge, near the Blue Ridge Parkway, and and I tell people if your church honeymoon pastor is not over. Uh, in the first four or five months, it will be soon. Mine ended in abruptly at the first budget planning committee meeting. I walked into the room, and I was unprepared for this. For some reason, they didn't teach you how to do this in seminary. And, and so I'm in there, and one of the persons on the committee said, uh, Pastor, <clears throat> would you share your vision for us? Well, I thought they wanted me to. I thought they were serious. So I started talking about things we could do to reach this community over there and things we could do there. And, and we could probably build a playground out here because that would be good for our children and our youth. And we could pave the parking lot because ours was still an unpaved parking lot. I'd never done this to applause before. And here's how the applause sounded. Everybody had a calculator in the room. I'd never run heavy equipment in my life. And everybody had a calculator. Some of them had two, one on each hand. That's pretty intimidating. But I thought, wow, they're... They're asking. And so after a few moments of this, uh, one of the dear saints on the committee said, uh, <clears throat> pastor said, uh, do you know what this amounts to? And I said, well, no, I have no idea. You just said, share your dream. And she hit the total button, and it looked like a ticker tape parade in the room. And she said, oh, my gosh, that's a 14% increase. And I thought they were kind of disappointed. I mean, I'm naive. I don't understand any better. And she said, obviously, he said, you don't know how we do budgets here in Galax, do you? And I said, no, ma'am. My first year, first church. She said, well, we start with a cola. I thought, well, that's a good idea. I'm kind of thirsty myself right now. I didn't know that was a cost of living adjustment. I'm telling you, I was naive. And she said, and by faith, we added that 2%. She said the cola this year was a 1%, so we can do 3%, and yours is 14 Where do you think the rest of this money's coming from? Well, it was kind of tense in the room, kind of like it is in here right now, and I thought they needed a little levity. And I said, well, ma'am, I've got some good news for you. I know you don't know my daddy, but he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. So I just asked him to sell a couple ahead this year. Well, the dear sister either didn't know the Bible or she didn't have a sense of humor because she didn't even get the joke. I thought it was pretty funny. And she said, oh, that's cute. Do you have a practical suggestion? And I said, no, ma'am. But there is a supernatural solution. You see, our problem is we want a practical suggestion for a supernatural ministry. Jesus said, I will build a church. Now, how does he do that? He uses people like Paul and Apollos. In fact, you go back to that text. Some of my students do not interpret that text well, and I had to help them. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Nobody. Now, that's not what he says. Servants through whom God works. That's why he goes on to say, now be careful how you build. You see, there's this incredible uh, almost collision, if you would, throughout the Bible of sovereignty of God and human response to that sovereignty. And he says, God is going to grow his church as his people ignite themselves through the Spirit of God, and they build upon this foundation which God himself laid so that all of our building has his empowering. 
Let me ask you again. What is it that you're doing requires this sort of empowering? Turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. I love the Ephesian letter. Many of you know it's my favorite letter. He prays for them. And one of the things is he prays that they would know the power available to them. Now listen to this description of this power. I'm going to go down to verse 19. And what is the boundless greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places. I don't know if you listen to that or not. And if you listen to it with ears to hear. Paul just said that God has empowered the church with the same sort of power that raised Jesus from the dead. You say, well, really? Is that what he means? Well, look at this. Far above all rule, authority, and power. He's placed him above every dominion, every name that's named, not only this age, but the one to come. And he did what? He put everything, all things in subjection under his feet. Why? Because he's made him now head over everything to the church. That's what he's talking about. Which is his fullness, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Same word that he used to describe Christ in Colossians 1.19 in reference to the Father. That Christ is the very fullness of God. He represents God fully, completely. He is fully God as well as fully man. Now he's saying that the church is given the same sort of resurrection power that God used in raising Jesus from the dead and putting every authority in heaven and earth under his feet. And he did it for one reason, and that's the church. Upon this rock I will build. Third phrase, my church. The word church here is ekklesia. You'll see it on the screen. Two Greek words, ek is out and kaleo is to call. This same word is used throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to speak of Israel as God's called out special people. So what Jesus is now saying is that I'm building a new ecclesia, not made of people who were by heritage Jews, but made up of Jews and Gentiles alike, made up of male and female, Paul would say, slave and free man, all who are in Christ Jesus. So let me give you a little definition. The church, then, is a called-out covenant community in relationship with Jesus Christ for the redemption of the world. So we're called out for that purpose. We're a covenant community. That's why we, uh, why we use membership. And people say, I don't think I have to be a member. I, a covenant's a covenant. You may say, well, I can live with a woman. I don't have to be married. Well, the Bible establishes a covenant of husband and wife. This is a covenant relationship. It's a covenant relationship of born-again people in relationship with each other and with Jesus Christ for the redemption of the world. 
You see, we don't so much join the church as we're born again into the church. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 would say, We are baptized by one spirit into one body that God himself has placed us in the body as he chose. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 12, 18. So we're not just another community that we add to our resume, like the lions and the bears and skunks and, oh yeah, by the Seneca Baptists. We're his community established by him to advance his kingdom agenda across the globe until he returns. And I had uh, the guy that was building our church. We, we, every square inch of our church in Norfolk was either built, rebuilt, torn down, reestablished. It was crazy time there. And the, the guy that was the contractor, his name was Hap Hoy, had Hoy construction trailers up and down the coast. Probably many of you saw them. And he was a big, big-time builder there, and we kept him employed so long that he, he, he and his wife ended up joining the church. And so one day he said, I, I want to invite you to a special club I belong to. It's called the Cosmopolitan Club. It's an interesting club. They only had two of every profession in it. So, you know, there'd be two realtors, and there'd be two builders, and two of these, and et cetera. And it's quite a, quite a big deal to be invited into this club. And so they didn't have two preachers. I'm not sure why, but... He invited me as his guest one day, and I was to, to pray. You know, you need a token preacher to pray so you can eat that rubber chicken. And, and so I was going there to pray and, and, and attend the meeting, and, and I was kind of excited about it because uh, at that time, Jacques Cousteau, remember Jacques? Uh, I, I was never a fan. You know, he stood in the back of the boat in the dry and sent his boys down to swim with the sharks, but there we go. But his boat, the Calypso, was in our harbor at that time, and the powers that be wanted to establish the Cousteau Center right there in our inner harbor. And, and so this was a fundraising luncheon. And so they were wanting to raise about, I forget what, it was a crazy amount of money back then anyway, because we had done all this construction, about $3 million. And that was a, a lot of building back then. And, and so this one was about $15 million for phase one. Well, I know I'm not decking out $15 million, so... I'm now on my third cup of coffee, my second chocolate mousse, trying to get a little caffeine burn to stay awake during this you know, meeting. And uh, so I, during that meeting, I had one of those E.F. Hutton moments. Now, some of you are not old enough to remember that there was a company called E.F. Hutton, an investing firm, and, and they had a famous saying, when Hutton speaks, people listen. Yeah, some of you and so I'm sitting there on my second chocolate mousse, minding my own business, thinking to myself, and I hear this coming out of my mouth, $18 million. Now, I need to tell you that at first I was kind of excited about the Cousteau Center because I thought they would have a big aquarium like they have in Atlanta or whatever, but it was a little odd, and so there were going to be mechanical computer-driven fish in there. And I'm going, oh, Okay. This is what came out of my mouth, $18 million, mechanical fish. You have got to be joking. Do you know what I'd do with $18 million? Now, I didn't realize that actually came out of my mouth. So everybody at my table has got the E.F. Hutton sign up like, okay. And I think, oh, my gosh, Mr. Hoy will never take me out in public again. I've embarrassed him in front of all his friends. And he's smiling. He said, I know what you'd do with it. You'd invest it in the church. I said, Mr. Hoy, now everybody at two or three tables is listening to me. 
I said, uh, if they build a custodial center, I said, I'll, I'll buy the tickets, bring my kids through, let them see the mechanical fish. But I made a commitment early in my life when I followed Christ that whatever resources, gifts, time, and energy God gives me, I'm going to invest it in His church because not one person that walks in the front door, out the back door of the Cousteau Center is going to spend eternity in heaven or hell because they visited this place. But I know that God has gifted me with abilities and resources, and he's gifted you with those that can impact eternity. Upon this rock, he said, I will build my, my church, my community. This is his family for all eternity. Two more phrases. The gates of hell will not overpower it. The gates of hell are the gates of Hades, some of your translations is another way of talking about death. That the very forces of Hades and death, that physical deceiver of man, will not overcome the Messianic community. In fact, it will be overcome by it. There's nothing in this life or in the life to come that can stop the advance of His kingdom. The image here is of the church plucking lost humanity from the grasp of death and hell. We forget that the earth and all that is in it is passing away, but we have been called to an unshakable kingdom. Let me encourage you to underline a verse that our pastor was dealing with on a Wednesday night some months ago. In Hebrews 12, uh, verse 28, 29, just underline it in your Bible. He says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. See, when you become a Christian, you become an heir and a joint heir of the kingdom of God. That kingdom can never be shaken. Since that, let us show gratitude by which we offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Go back to 1 Corinthians 3. He said, listen, because we've inherited from the king an eternal kingdom that we're going to be priest and reign with him forever, let's give now on earth an acceptable sacrifice to him because he's a consuming fire. That which does not match the foundation will be burned up. You know, we got a picture on the screen that we celebrate a first responder. I, I, I love these pictures. They come out all the time and there's somebody that comes out of a rubble of a building or they come out of a, you have that picture up there. They come out of a, a burning fire and they've got a, they've got a child. You, how many have you seen? It, it, it moves me every time I see it. I don't know about you. That guy goes into that burning building, risking his own life, and he comes out with this little three or four-year-old child. You know when I see that? What comes to my mind? What comes to my mind is a Sunday school teacher, a worker in Awana, a VBS worker, a choir member, a greeter out in the parking lot, those behind-the-scenes servants, those who are serving dinner to those couples that will be coming to our church. Do we think about the fact that those people are making an impact that's like this where the gates of hell, what looks like behind him, that this man was running to run into those gates of hell to save that one little girl? That's what the church is like. 
It's what happens every Sunday morning as you're back there teaching two or three of these little children. You see, we don't know the impact, and we will never know it until we come face to face with Him in eternity, that what we do has the power to overcome the very gates of death. I thought about that this morning as we talked about a member we lost in a wheelchair over here. Many of you watched, beautiful smile on her face. We didn't lose her. <laughs> She's not lost. She's already there. She's in eternity. She may be watching this today saying, I like it better up here. The worship's even better up here. Trust me. Bigger choir. Lots of choir. And the angels join the choir up there. Oh, the last one. Here it is. The royal responsibility. I'm going to give to you the keys of the kingdom. We know something about keys. They signify honor, authority, responsibility. I was invited back to do a Methodist church, big, big event in Thomasville, North Carolina. I grew up from the time I was nine on in Thomasville. Played football there. Kind of a little hometown hero. You know how that is. So the big Methodist church was owned by the Finches who owned Thomasville Furniture. And every year they had a kind of a preaching convention. They wouldn't call it a revival because they were Methodists. And that would be too Baptist to call it a revival. And, but they'd have someone, quote, famous come back in. So finally, after I became the seminary president, they invited me back. And uh, they took me uptown to give me the keys of the city. Kind of cool, except they don't open anything. I tried. It, the bank it didn't work down there. I think the only thing it would open was a Coke bottle because it was actually a, a bronze key that had a Coke, you know, opener on the end of it. Well, I understood. It was a sense of honor. I, I remember when I was 16, another set of keys I wanted. Y'all remember those? <laughs> Car keys. My dad did something just, I, I never missed my grandkids cannot believe this. I never missed a day at school. I never missed a day at Sunday school or church. You could not be sick on a school day or a church day. If you wanted to get sick, Saturday was your only option when I was a kid. Done. I mean, you'd have had to have been something on oxygen probably to get out of church, I'm sure. And uh, so my dad, on my 16th birthday, got me out of bed and said, Son, let's go get your driver's license. I'm going, you've got to be kidding. He's taking me out of school to do this. So we go down, I go in and take my test, you know, and then I get out and take the driver's test. We get back in the car, and I'm not even thinking. I've got to go to school now. And so I get in on the passenger side. He said, what are you doing? Screw up. Threw me the keys. I grabbed those keys. I'm trembling, you know. I got put them in my fire, trying to get them in the... And he put a big, my dad's hands were claws. They weren't hands. He grabbed me, right? He said, son, do you know what happens if you get caught speeding? I thought, I just took that test. And so I start quoting the code, and he said, no, boy. You don't have to worry about the law. He said, son, you ever get caught speeding, you'll walk till Jesus comes. You, you hear what I'm saying? So he said, son, along with this honor is the responsibility. So what are the keys and what is the responsibility that we have there? Now we know that keys can either permit or prevent access. Even though scholars like to debate this, the answer to this is very simple. It's the good news. 
It's the good news that the one true king left heaven's eternal kingdom and came to earth, shedding his royal authority, taking upon himself human flesh, becoming obedient unto death, even death on the cross for our sin, that we might become his children and join him as a mission on this earth and then one day spend all eternity in his presence. There's no gift more precious, nor any responsibility more awesome. What if you discovered the cure to cancer, but you failed to share that with cancer victims? Cancer is an awful disease. We know that. We're watching that for the first time with our dear family from our church. But there's a greater disease, one that's leading to eternal death. It's called sin. And 100% of all people born on planet Earth have the disease. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the end result of this disease is death. For the wages of that sin is death. But there is absolutely amazing good news. The sin problem we have a cure for. And his name is Jesus. The greatest crisis we face today is not the border crisis. It's not even climate change. Not global war, which we may well be facing. It's a lostness. Because it has eternal consequences. And we have a sure solution. When I was a boy, the church was often referred to as the old ship of Zion. Any of you remember that saying? It came to me one day when I was writing one of the books I wrote on church growth. That the problem we have today is that we think the ship of Zion is the love boat. Designed to keep us comfortable, well-fed, happy, until Jesus comes again. And the problem is, when you think the ship design is the love boat, we can kind of get tedious over little things. Like, well, somebody was in my deck chair this morning when I came up. Fortunately, we have enough big deck chairs in here that everybody can have their own. But I remember I've been in churches where I'd have people put cushions down to save their place, and if somebody accidentally sat in it, they'd be politely told to move. Well, and as long as they don't get the music so loud that I can't take a nap in my deck chair. You got that one, Christopher. I'm going to help you. You know, we, we, the problem is when we have a love boat mentality, all the peripheral things become primary issues. Well, I think the lecture was too long last night. Speaking of long sermons. Or, you know, I just don't think... That staff cares about our needs anymore out here. I mean, my, my deck chair wasn't ready this morning. I mean, they didn't have the cushion out. The cushion, I, they expect me to sit in that hard deck chair without a cushion. You see, we get involved in non-essentials rather than the gospel. Well, let me give you another image. Ship Zion is a hospital ship. It's a mercy ship. Everybody on it has already been rescued by it. And now the rescuers become the rescuers. So here's the picture God kind of put in my mind a few years ago. You got this couple standing out on a hospital ship, and they're in their finery because it's their night to eat at the captain's table. You, you remember if you've ever been on a cruise, they used to give you a night where you were 
along with the thousand of your best friends in the captain's table there, you know. And the problem is we're on a hospital ship. And just off the bow, the Titanic is going down. There are potential survivors everywhere, but they're nasty. These people covered with oil. I mean, we don't want them on our ship because they would get us messy. It's messy out there. And in fact, we get up there and lecture each other. Boy, the world is in a mess. Look out there. These people are awful. They're just starving. Oh, well, it's about time for the captain's table. See, the danger is when you don't understand that we're on a mercy ship that has one mission, to seek and save the lost, we can become so compelled by it meeting our needs if we forget to serve the needs of a lost world. In the name of Christ, He came to seek and save the lost. So I've got some questions for you. So let's put them up. You write them down. Some questions just to ponder. Does the quality of my building material match the costly nature of the foundation? You can think about that in terms of your giving financially. Your serving. Where you serve, when you serve, if you serve. And, and you may say, well, I'm kinda, I did that when I was younger. There's no retirement in the kingdom of heaven. You get to retire when you get to glory because you're going to be serving face to face and you'll probably then have greater energy than you ever had for serving the King of Kings. Number two, what am I doing that requires supernatural empowerment? You can ask this another way. What have I avoided doing because it's outside my comfort zone? Could be related to ministry here in the church, singing in the choir, pulling out an instrument. I still want an orchestra. Can I make an appeal for that, Christopher? pulling out that instrument you haven't played in years and, and dusting it off and getting up and using it to praise the Lord of glory. I don't know what it is, but the question is, what is it that you say, if, if there were no constraints on me, this is what I'd love to do for the Lord. That's what God wants you to do. Number three, does my attendance, my service, and my giving indicate that I believe this is His church? Number four, am I prioritizing that which is eternal in nature? I lived in a golf course community for years. I love golf. I'm not good at it, but I do love it. And that's probably what makes you love it so much. It's hard to master. And I had a lot of friends there buying a new set of clubs every year. If, you know, if you could buy a golf game, they had it. And they did all this because they wanted to win the championship trophy one year. And I told them, I said, you know, you spent millions of dollars trying to win a cup that when you die, your kids are going to put in the yard sale. I said, if you want it that bad, go out Saturday to the yard sales and buy one. Nobody's going to look at it and see whose name's on it. Put it up on your mantle for a while and then your kids will sell it. If they can get anything for it. Do you, do we, prioritize that which is eternal? Last one. Have I been a good steward of the keys? You say, what's that? That's the gospel. Who do you know that you're praying for right now? Who do you know that's lost? 
Who do you know that if they don't hear this message in due time are going to spend eternity separated from a holy God? We don't use the word hell much anymore in church, do we? It's real. It's eternal. There's nothing pleasant about it. It's where the worm never stops turning. You ever thought of what that means? It's where you can't die, even though you want to die every day. People in hell will never die. They will experience the awesome pain and agony of their sin and separation from the God who is holy, who created them every day for all of eternity. I, I can't comprehend it. I can't even imagine. I, I, I've watched people that were in pain who asked me as their pastor, would you pray that God would just take me home? And some of those dear saints, I was willing to pray that prayer with them because I knew that the God had a place for them. But I'm telling you, I cannot even fathom in my foggiest mind wanting anybody, even my worst enemy, to spend eternity wanting to die and not being able to because they're in such pain. Separated from a holy God who loved them so much that he died in their place even while they were rejecting him. I, I don't know where this message and story finds you today. Maybe you're here without Christ. You don't know what it means to be a follower of Christ. Maybe you do know that you've just never taken that final step to say, okay, it's done. This is the day that I follow Christ in this earth. Maybe, maybe you need a church home. If you love him, you're going to love his church, his bride. Maybe you need a place to serve. Maybe you need to get plugged in here and you're a member and you just say, I don't know where I fit. I promise you, there's a place for you here or he wouldn't have put you here. 1 Corinthians 12, 18 says, go read it today. He puts you in this body in his purpose for his purpose. You're here for a reason. So in a moment, we're going to give a time of response. The pastors will be down here. The altar's open if you want to come pray. Maybe somebody will want to come say, Lord, I just don't ever want to put a, any more rubbish on that altar. No more sticks and stone, all of that. I want gold, silver, precious stone. Maybe somebody will say, Pastor, I don't know what it means to be a church member. Can you help me? Some of you may say, I just want to know what it means to follow Jesus and to know him. Father, What we deal with this morning is eternal in nature. Decisions made at this altar will have greater consequence than every decision that's made in Wall Street or in Washington this week. Now we realize, Lord, even as we say it, that there are decisions that could plunge us into chaos. There are decisions which could create a global war, decisions which could make economy slide. But all those things are temporal at best. But Lord, decisions can be made this morning and will be made that will not just reverberate through the years but will impact eternity that the gates of hell cannot stand against those decisions. Lord, in Jesus' name, we ask that this seed that's been sown, and you say it's a good seed, it comes from your word, would never return void. Lord, you tell us the soil could reject it. Lord, if there's one here that's got a hard heart and they're rejecting what they're hearing, 
May your Holy Spirit impress upon them that it's your word, not my word. Lord, if there's one that's thorns and thistles, maybe it's pride, anxiety that says, I'm not going to walk that out. People wonder why I'm down there. Lord, just rip that out this morning. Don't let the adversary take any of the seed away before it finds a root. And may it find deep, deep root and bear great fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand together, our pastor will be here and issue the invitation.